All right, I'm going to ask Dr. Farnell, Dave Farnell, to come up, Dave. And uh, your laptop's here, so I think you're ready to go. We're looking forward to another night of uh, great insights into the decline into the morass of heresy going on today. Thank you. How's that? Okay. Hey, good news or bad news, depending on your perspective. Uh, I'm behind. Uh, I have 390 slides. So, yes, we are now going to back out of the gate. Captain Burroughs has put on the please fasten your seat belts. He doesn't want me to do this, but I like him. I don't know. I kind of like him. He's not putting on the no smoking sign, so long as you're smoking something that's not legal in California. So we've got to get going. I got to make sure. Here we go. Now, all of this, the full slide system can be downloaded, Barb told me, from the web. So I'm going to really, why isn't that showing up? No, I did that to see if that would reboot the system. I'm going to go escape. Yeah, no, I have it. It's on here. It's not showing on there. That's what's going on. Let me try again. There you go. Thank you. Okay. Fasten your seatbelts. We're going to taxi out to the runway here. Um, thanks for coming back after my mental insanity last night. It will get worse. Now, I want you to know that I'm probably going to say something about someone who's your friend, your acquaintance, or whatever, and I want you to know this is not personal. Vito Corleone said this is not personal. <laughs> Let me look right into the camera. This is business, okay? So I get people mad at me when I do this, but, you know, didn't Paul in First and Second Timothy talk about this is what we do. Preach the word. So if someone you know, then call them up and ask them, why are they endorsing certain things? Even if they don't support what the person said, why are they saying, well, I'll support his right to say it then maybe? Because some of these things, I don't know if they should be said. Let me introduce you to Dr. Michael Lycona, a prestigious critical evangelical critical scholar. Remember now, What's the goal? What will this do to our pulpit? And there are many different definitions of inerrancy, and the one that you probably hold to, that the Bible is well without error, isn't one that they're probably trying to uh, promote now. He's at Houston Baptist. He is the point man for many things, including a new method of interpreting the Bible called Greco-Roman biography. I've got wonderful news for you. Your God is so powerful that he was able to inspire the level of the Gospels to Greco-Roman biography. That means that God was able to get the Bible up to the level of the literature of 
Plutarch, Thucydides, you serve a wonderful God. That God was able to get to that level. See, but the only trouble is, uh, yeah, Plutarch and Thucydides had to make some things up. I mean, you can't tell the mixture between what seems to be history and what is legend. So let's go look at this. He calls the Chicago Statement Chicago's muddy waters. He doesn't like the Chicago Statement. That's because Greco-Roman biography, and that just says this. That's a fancy term. You know, you've got to watch intellectuals. They like to take simple things like God's Word and make it complex because they'd lose their job. If you could teach the Bible simply, who would need the elite scholars? They wouldn't have a job. And somebody asked me last night, what's the problem? What's going on? It's because we've lost. Peter said, what are you supposed to do? Humble yourself under the almighty hand of God and he'll exalt you. But when you get these prestigious degrees, and that's really a problem. I'm not talking personally about him. But he thinks Chicago is muddy waters. He says, if the inerrancy of the uh, word, oh, excuse me, I say, if the inerrancy of the word of God cannot be trusted and is at most a secondary doctrine, which he says, then how can you trust the assertions regarding Jesus' resurrection? See, he wrote a wonderful book for 700 pages that said Jesus was resurrected. Then he turned around and did something that completely undermined the resurrection of Jesus. So let's go and let's have a little test. I'm going to read something. Turn in your Bibles. There's some Bibles in your pews, and we're going to read Matthew 27, starting with verse 44. I'll read it, and I just want you to ask yourself some simple, plain, interpretive questions. What's going on? Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man calls for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth quaked, the rocks were split, the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. We'll stop there. Okay, tell me what happened at the death of Jesus. Just tell me. Don't, nothing complex here, huh? What else? Somebody said resurrected saints? No. Did you? No. I'm, no trick questions. I don't, I'm not a tricky professor. I'm not smart enough to be a tricky professor. Okay. Huh? No. Didn't you catch the signal? Didn't you catch the hermeneutical signal? I can't believe you've been in church for this long and you haven't caught the hermeneutical signal. The resurrection of the saints never happened. That's symbolic. And you didn't catch the signal. There you go. I wish some would. Not you. He says this is symbolic of Jewish apocalyptic. It's a strange little text, and it's symbolic, but Jesus was raised from the dead. But you don't understand when you do that, Jimmy Dunn, who's a British, you know, I've talked about the Brits, you'll have to forgive me. 
But the foppish Brits, you know, they do the same thing and say that uh, Jesus' resurrection was Jewish apocalyptic. And the best you could say about Jesus, Jimmy Dunn said, was that he hoped to be resurrected at the final resurrection. I'll show you this. So you missed it. This didn't happen. Of course, the rocks were torn in two. The temple uh, uh, curtain was torn. But all of a sudden, now let me show you where he goes. Resurrection of Jesus, a historiographical approach. That means, how did they write history? Well, they used Greco-Roman bioi. Ignorant and unlearned man knew how to come up to the level of Plutarch and Thucydides. Uh, as we said, Michael Lycona doesn't follow uh, ICBI. Uh, the CSBI and the Doctrine of Biblical Inerrancy are not the same. So whatever his definition is it of, it's probably not what you may be used to. And he dismisses it. Uh, let's go on. So Michael Lycona's syllogism, which means his thinking is Greco-Roman bio or biography, it means our gospel writers wrote like the Greek historians Thucydides and Plutarch, although they don't agree on which Greek historian they should choose for the level of how they wrote history. Uh, so Greco-Roman biography has a mixture of history and legend and myth. The gospels are Greco-Roman bioi, and therefore the gospels have a mixture of history, legend, and myth. Let's go on. He says that this text that you, you misinterpreted because you didn't catch the signal, I'm still looking for the signal, says this is a strange little text. He terms it special effects. By the way, that's what Boltman did to the resurrection of Jesus. That can't happen. This is strange to me. This is existential Kierkegaardian hermeneutics for any of you that are philosophers. It doesn't make sense to him, so it's symbolic. His apparent concern also rests with only Matthew as mentioning the event. He concludes that Jewish eschatological text, that's a quote, and thought in mind as the most plausible. He, he says it seems best to regard this difficult text in Matthew as a poetic device. You didn't know that was poetry, did you? Roses are red, violets are blue. Sugar is sweet. And, yeah. and the saints were risen too. I don't know. Uh, so bio, which is their technical term for our gospel writers, wrote just like, Plutarch and Thucydides, they had a habit of inventing speeches and they often included legend. So uh, it's often difficult to tell that uh, where uh, history ends and legend begins in the Gospels because they wrote like the Greek historians did. Uh, he also suggests that the appearance of angels at Jesus' tomb after the resurrection is also legendary. He wrote, it can forthly be admitted that the data surrounding what happened to Jesus is fragmentary and could possibly be mixed with legend. We may also be reading poetic language or legend at certain points, yet he will sign the ETS statement and say he believes in inerrancy. This is what I struggle with these critical evangel evangelical critical scholars. They'll all sign the ETS statement. But you've got to ask them, now that somebody says, I believe in inerrancy, sit them down and ask them, what do you, take them to this and test them. Robert Gundry. Now, I was a young whippersnapper when uh, uh, Robert Gundry wrote his commentary on Matthew, and he said uh, uh, Matthew, the infancy narratives of Matthew 1 to 3 were Jewish midrash. It's about right here. That it start to, yeah. What is that? What is Greco-Roman biography and Jewish Midrash? It's a way to allegorize the Bible. If you don't like something, then you can say it's not to be taken literally. That's the little trick here that we want to make clear. Gundry concluded, though, even though he was Midrash, Gundry concluded that the resurrection took place. So what I'm trying to show you by that is what makes these guys do that is their arbitrary whatever they want to do with whatever 
gzhikta. Remember gzhikta? Whatever gzhikta that they want to apply if something doesn't make sense to them. That's why we emphasize the plain normal sense of scripture. There was no signal there. I don't know what happened with those resurrected saints. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I'll tell you, I'll trust Matthew over any evangelical critical scholar today. So anyway, uh, what drives his assumption to make these conclusions is that the gospel writers wrote like ancient Greek and Roman historians did with history and legend together. And here is what you're sensing. Lacona offers no interpretive way for you to sense. When do you take it as not literal? There's no signal there. So it's arbitrary. And just what's great about this is whatever you don't like in Scripture, just call it midrash. And you've become an evangelical critical scholar. Call it Greco-Roman biography. And you've become, look, you're gaining prestige. In the eyes of men, you will gain great prestige. Not in God's eyes. But uh, in the eyes of the world. That's what Boltman did, as we told you. He even thinks that even if some embellishments are present. Now, I challenge you to go, go get the book and read it and see if I'm right. See if I, you know, have understood him correctly. There's always that chance that, you know, that misunderstanding. I don't think so. He also says a possible candidate for embellishment means that's creative embellishment, meaning they, they made it up is John 18, 4 through 6, where Jesus claimed, I am. And he fell down. That's a little creative embellishment, you know, to emphasize who Jesus was. He kind of embellished that one. There is no indication in the text that that was made up. There will be no hermeneutical signal. So biblical inerrancy for him is not an essential doctrine for the Christian faith. But how can you say Jesus was raised from the dead? And you, if you say that there are mythological elements in the New Testament, how in the wide world can you have any confidence Jesus was raised from the dead? Let's use just simple logic here. He said biblical inerrancy is not a fundamental doctrine. We must think of historical reliability in light of the literary conventions belonging to the historical genre of the era. So what he's saying is, and you read this, you can download it. They didn't care about being accurate like we do. They would make compositional devices and it didn't happen quite the way it did. If you read the Jesus crisis, they, some of these evangelicals, not him, but others will say there was no Sermon on the Mount. Matt, whoever wrote Matthew made it up. Nice sermon. So this does not mean that the author could not have included a small number of legendary stories. Small number. Well, why do you stop there? How about the whole schmear? And we go on. Lycona contends that the Gospels, we can verify numerous elements reported by an ancient author to be true in their essential in their essence, excuse me, though not necessarily in every detail. Plenary verbal inspiration, the last time I taught it, meant word for word, complete word for word inspiration. Uh, we have to believe that the author intended to write an accurate account of what occurred, notwithstanding his use of compositional devices. That's the key. Watch for those because that means they kind of, in the way I would express it, is they played fast and loose with what happened. The majority of New Testament scholars now hold the Gospels belong to Greco-Roman biography. Whoa, here's the lemmings. Go to SBL. This started by an Anglican priest named Burridge who got it from a Southern Baptist named Talbert. And so you want to be prestigious? 
at SBL, Society of Biblical Literature, you sure wouldn't say the Bible is true. You've got to find some novel way of interpreting it. So all the ETS prestigious scholars line up with the big boys at SBL, but they know if they go too far, they'll lose their job. So what happens? They start following, and they start following, and they go off the cliff in some way. This is what's going on. So, sometime for more positive, they sometimes included fiction, he says. In this, and the Bible includes fiction. We have no good reason to believe more than a very small percentage. Isn't that praise the Lord? God was able to make sure that only just a very small percentage would he inspired the Word of God. Trick is, figure out which one it is. Good luck with that. The Gospels paint literary portraits of Jesus that are true enough. Now, he's a nice guy. I, you know, these are nice guys. But remember, my point is this. You start telling this to preacher boys, they're going to get in your pulpits. And I believe these evangelical critical scholars, it's a waiting game when all the faithful men are no longer here. Then they control. And they're getting in control. And that's what happened at the turn of the 20th century. And it's a waiting game for some of those men that I studied under that would never have allowed this, all they're doing is waiting, and then they're, they're all in charge of ETS now, these guys. This is it. I'm going to show you. And we can do that. The empty tomb narratives fulfill the criterion on embarrassment and appear to be generally reliable. Praise the Lord. God was able to say he can make it generally reliable. He brought it up to the level of Thucydides and Plutarch. I would like to point out, Ehrman says, an interesting phenomenon, which I think is probably an empirical fact that the only people who think the Gospels are absolutely accurate in every detail are Christian fundamentalists. Now, that's Bart Ehrman. I'll I tell you what, I praise God for Bart Ehrman. He's an honest guy. Remember the Germans I told you about? They will say, ich glaube es nicht. I won't believe it. I like Ehrman. Why? He tells you, I, I left the faith. I know where that guy stands, but I can't figure it out sometimes with these other guys. Where do they stand when they do this stuff? Mike is clearly not in the fundamentalist camp. Now, there's a man that would recognize it because Bart Ehrman came. He, he uh, uh, it was in the fundamentalist camp and left. As uh, uh, You can read that if you go down. I want to get sure I get through enough of this. The only people who think the Gospels are absolutely accurate in every detail are Christian fundamentalists. Do you think the Bible is accurate in every detail? then you're a fundamentalist. Now, that's called name-calling. Don't let them get away with that. They love to call you names. Put the fun back into fundamentalism, you know? They love to call you names. See, if you don't go with the elites, you're a doofus. Well, call me names. They called the apostles names. They called others. And I agree with Bart Ammon saying this is not what nor fundamentalist Christianity ever believed about the gospel. Yet they sign, what's the ETS statement? I believe in what? Inerrancy. So you ask any scholar now, I don't care who it is, including me. What do you mean by inerrancy? Because I haven't the foggiest idea. Bart Ehrman, again, I take heart in Mike's statements that the authors of the gospels often use literary devices. Now that meant they were creative in their composition. That meant it may not have happened the way it appears. So anyway, so let's... Oh, here is a good point of Ehrman. Even if Matthew's account of Jesus were as good as Plutarch's of Romulus, that wouldn't make it reliable because people say Plutarch wasn't very reliable. This is a guy that's left the faith. He's honest. 
I should point out that even if Matthew's account of Jesus were as good as Plutarch's account of Romulus, that would definitely not make it very reliable. How do you like that? What I really find insulting on God's spirit is you are saying that the Holy Spirit of the living God, the spirit of truth, was only able to come up to the level of Plutarch and Thucydides. You better be careful there because my theological, personal opinion is that you're blaspheming the power of the Holy Spirit when you do that. How dare you insult when it says God's Spirit bore these men along for the price of having academic respectability? Then I'm an idiot. I'm going on. We're going to get to some... uh, These are the people... Now, here's where I get myself in trouble... I name names and I show pictures. That's not very popular, but let me give you a Yiddish term for what I do. I'm a nudge. Do you know what that is? Oh, that's what I'm called to do as a preacher. For the time will come when they don't understand sound doctrine, so here's what I do. I'm a nudge, and I'm going to tell you the names. Now, these people aren't necessarily saying they agree with Bart Ehrman or uh, with Lycona. But they say he has a right to say it. Well, I think he has a right to say it too. But I wonder the impact on preacher boys. When they get in the pulpit, you're going to notice that they will not have the filling of the Spirit that was mentioned tonight when they preach because they've been told that God's Spirit lacked the power to guarantee that His Word was true, the Spirit of truth. Here they are. David Beck, Craig Blomberg, James Chancellor, William Lane Craig, Jeremy Evans, Gary Habermas, Craig S. Keener, Douglas Moo, J.P. Moreland, Keith A. Thomas, Daniel B. Wallace, William Lauren, Edmund Yamayuchi. Now, I'm not telling you and I'm not saying, get this clear, that they necessarily agree, but they're saying, we support his right to say it. How dare you question him? Well, isn't that what God's Word calls us to do? And I will. And I don't care if they don't like me. Believe me, they call me names. In line with biblical inerrancy, what do these evangelical critical scholars even mean by inerrancy? Are different views of inerrancy being propounded? Yes. Does the term now have any significance? If God is only able to bring up our word to the level of Greco-Roman biography standards, close your Bibles. Go home. Start your own cult. Now let's listen to this because i got to prove it. Here we go. I, whoop, 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 whoop. I won't play that. I, I just, that's for, uh, oh, I'm not getting sound. you got to hear this. Why am I not getting, oh, I, did I, excuse me, everybody, did I? No, I have sound on. Yes, it's plugged in. So let me go back. Let me put this back up. Sorry, I want to. Okay, now let me try. Whoop, sorry. That's why I said fasten your seatbelts, Captain Burroughs, because you're going to get dizzy. Whoa, hey, whoa. Can you hear that? Can you hear me now? You don't need to hear me. I want you to hear this. This is where he says Mark was confused. I don't know why I'm not getting sound. Yeah, no, there's volume. Huh? Yes, 100%. Yes. 
There we go. I'll, I did it again, and I think we did it now. Okay, here we go. And I'm not going to play this long. I think that's one of the most difficult ones. That looks more like just probably Mark is confused. Uh, okay, what is he talking about? The gospel writers, well, if they only can come up to the level of Plutarch and Thucydides, you know they have to get a little confused when they write. Well, he's talking about the, uh, the geography and movements of the apostles during the feeding of the 5,000. His conclusion, uh, you can't really harmonize it, so Mark is... And, of course, my response is, uh, Mike, Mike, you're confused. I'll trust those writers before I'll trust evangelical critical scholars. There's more to that. You can play it. I think Barb has that whole audio. We're going to move on. I can't play that. There he is. It starts, he, Oxford Press. You know, Oxford Press, if you want to write, you believe the Bible, forget Oxford Press. Anytime you want to write, for Oxford and the Brits and you want to deprecate the Bible, they'll open their doors to you publishing. So here we have a psychological operation for those of you who are in the military. Here is an evangelical being used as a psychological operation to deprecate the Word of God. And there's Oxford Press. This is SBL because no scholar worth his salt as prestigious would ever just go to ETS. You go to SBL to see what the big boys do. Then you modify it a little bit so that you can be a prestigious scholar too but don't want to lose your job. We're going to continue. This is Craig Evans. He is over at, he's a distinguished professor. I'm an extinguished professor most of the time at my school. Dean of School of Christian Thought. Now, he's at Houston Baptist, and here's the forward. What's interesting is Craig doesn't know it, but he knows my wife. My wife, Sandy, and Craig went to the same church at Foothill Baptist. She married a knee-jerk fundamentalist like me, and he became a prestigious scholar. He says this. He cautions naive conservatives. Notice how evangelical critical scholars love to call names. Well, go ahead and do it. I don't care. Who rely on simplistic harmonizations and pat answers that really do not do not do justice to the phenomenon. Ooh, Craig, I feel you're taking me to the woodshed because I'm a, I believe the Bible 100%. I'm a fundamentalist, knee-jerk fundamentalist. See, that's okay. When I stand before God, I'll tell you one thing I don't want to say is, Lord, I bought into Greco-Roman biography. I believe, I'm not saying that these people don't know the Lord, I'm not saying that. I do believe that in the millennial kingdom, some of the scholars may be cleaning the toilets there. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm bad. He calls us ultra conservatives. Ooh, doesn't that, never let them uh, back you down with that. I love it when they call me names. I laugh. Okay. Many Christian readers of Dr. Lycona's book will be sur surprised by his findings. <laughs> yeah, I'll say they will. Some will perhaps be troubled. Now, here's who did this. Uh, I wish to thank. Now, I didn't write this. I'm going to mention names. You probably know these guys. These probably are nice guys. But I wouldn't want my name attached to this. And they wouldn't put my name. <laughs> I'm a junkyard dog. Remember that. Uh, I would like to thank Daryl Bach, Dallas Seminary. Craig Keener, 
for uh, reviewing the entire manuscript except for chapter 5 in the conclusion. To Craig Blomberg and Daryl Bach for reading a paper I presented in 2015 at the Alameda of the which became the basis for chapter 5. And believe me, both of them say that the Bible, uh, they both come out with statements that the, that the Gospels are Greco-Roman biography. That's the popular way they go because that's what SBL says. The Anglican priests at SBL do it, so let's follow the leader. And he mentions Craig Blomberg again, Daryl Bach, Larry Connick, Gary Habermas, Randy Richards, and Dan Wallace. Now, I'm not saying they fully buy into everything that Mike said, but he's thanking them for their assistance. Now, I had some of those, at least one, as a professor. And uh, I was writing on Hans Councilman, Die Mitte der Zeit, which is the midst of time, the theology of St. Luke. I tell stories. That's what gets me in trouble. I'm always in trouble. And uh, my wife was witness to some of the things that happened to me at the seminary. I won't mention its name. It's a seminary in Dallas. It's a Dallas City Theological Seminary. I tell you, I'm dangerous. And this is why they don't like me. So I wrote on it, and Konzelman, the German, was saying, John the Baptist wasn't real. It's figurative. Uh, the wilderness was figurative. So I wrote on his presuppositions. What's driving him to say these things? That's why I was taught at Talbot by my professors. Identify their a priori that's driving in the thinking. When I got the paperback, it glowed with red. Ooh. You know, I mean, I knew I was in trouble. He says, I want to speak to you in my office. True story, as I remember it. <laughs> no, I really remember it because I got the shock of my life. Honest. He said, I don't want to hear where you disagree with the liberal. You find places to agree with the liberal or you will not surmount the program at whatever. <laughs> They're the only ones doing good critical work. So I, I believe he threatened me because... Uh, Bob Wilkes told me around my time that I was at Dallas, uh, two or three guys were washed out. Conservative guys. Remember the third generation? I told you about that. So I'm warning you, Chafer Seminary, you better watch. I don't know what generation you're in, but watch. So I went back and I had to find places where I tried to find where I could agree with Councilman. Boy, that was hard. I could write the other one up real quick. The other one took me days to go. So he, the next page, he's mentioned them again. Naive, that we already done that. Um, he's, here it is. He mentions William Lane Craig, Craig Evans, uh, Craig Keener, my Dr. Vodder, Jan van der Vaught, and Dan Wallace. Okay, we go on. So I'm going to go off a Lycona. He says that the uh, Gospels are, are the standard of Greco-Roman bioi, that Greco-Roman boy has a difficulty at times of telling where history is really and where compositional legend devices. And so he comes out with a new book from Oxford, and he wants to show you all of these compositional devices that he says the Gospel has in common with Greco-Roman biography. And when you go there, and I went there and I did the review, please feel free to critique my own review, you don't have to see any of what he cites as any compositional device of the gospel right. All you need is simple harmonization to explain what happened there. Simple harmonization. But they won't accept that. Why? Let me tell you the magic of historical criticism. Can you remember the illustration I gave you last night? When you think of historical criticism, there were two illustrations I gave you. What were they? Pig with lipstick 
and grape nuts. See, there's magic in this because, you know, when you preach the Bible plainly normally, you can't really be creative. Uh, Paul said, you find faithful men who will teach other men faithfully. Well, you know what? We send them to seminary. This is where I get in trouble. And we tell them, come up with a novel view in your PhD. You know what that leads to? Heresy. Now, I don't think we, you know, we mean well. But let's say judgment begins at the house of God. So you can't come up with anything novel with grammatico-historical, plain normal sense of scripture. It was a hermeneutical revolution that caused the Reformation. We are here because of that. But historical critical, grape nuts, you don't have to accept. Just put the magic of gzichte. <laughs> this is Midrash. Uh, use Greco-Roman biography. And then the Bible can melt, mold. You just melt a little bit and you can mold it. And you come up with a novel and you then get famous over novelty. And this is what we do in seminary education. Sorry, but I'm going to tell you the way it really is, and I'm going to make everybody mad, but I'm used to that. So anyway, there's the pig with lipstick. Every one of these things that, like, listen, if you say that the resurrection of the saints is a Jewish apocalyptic, there's nothing that stops you from doing like what Jimmy Dunn said in Jesus Remembered. He did the very same kind of thing and he said that Jesus wasn't resurrected, that Jesus thought he would be, and that uh, uh, he probably had in mind the resurrection at the final end of history and not his own special resurrection. Jimmy Dunn, another Brit. They're, I'm not friends with the Brits, and I come from my ancestors. I don't like mamby-pamby preachers. Because if you have a mamby-pamby preacher, then you don't have a church that is on fire for God. That's the way it is, and that's the way it's going. I want to tell you about Greco-Roman biography, and I'm going to skip this because I've got to get to more stuff. This is an absolute fraud. This was invented as a scholarly fad. See, at SBL, it's like in Acts. Have you ever seen an Acts at Areopagus Hill? It said all the Greek scholars went up to Areopagus Hill to discuss anything new. This is what these guys do. This was invented by an Anglican priest. He was a classics major at Oxford. So what he did was he came to the Bible and he put on his Oxford classic glasses. And guess what he saw in the Bible? It's a psychological operation. He saw Greco-Roman biography. Nice that the British say it's only partial myth. See, the Germans would say it's entirely myth. I like the Germans because they're honest. Brits will say, I'd say, oh boy, I can't lose my job. So it's partial myth. And that's where we send our men to train them. You can look through this. Um, um, I want to go on. I don't want to hit. I, at... Uh, the pre-trib, I didn't get too far, so I want to go on. You've got this. You can look at this. You can call me an idiot. Please feel free to do so. My conclusion is, what is Michael Lycona's definition of inerrancy? You sign ETS that has the ICBI as a guide. You call Chicago Muddy Waters. Tell me, what is your view of inerrancy, Dr. Lycona? And by the way, I believe the other guys are putting him out front, and they want to see what crosshairs he's in because they can push Michael up there. Push Michael. You know, okay, where's the guns at for Michael? Oh, bang! Oh, I better back off a little bit. 
If ETS has an inerrancy statement to sign and it corresponds to the ICBI, this ain't no ICBI inerrancy. Why don't they just, can you want my opinion of ETS? Why don't they just go join SBL and close it? If you're going to not stand for God's word, you have one doctrinal statement, ETS. God's word is inerrant. Close it and go worship with SBL, where they serve wine and cheese. Okay. <laughs> Quo Vadis, where are you going? Let's go on. Um, we got to skip there. Now, I want to show you this. There are the rabbis. I shouldn't call anybody a rabbi. There are the rabbis evaluating this book. See all these? Some of you may recognize these faces. Here are the rabbis. They are looking. The elite scholars. The ones that, the big ones that I talk about. They're so much smarter than I am. I'm an idiot. You know what kind of a dog I am. You know, come on. Junkyard dog. Somebody said to me, I had a junkyard dog that lived next to me. So that's what my wife says to, to me, you know what I mean? So anyway, look at that. There they are adjudicating it. But let me show you this. Tyler McNabb, nothing personal, great scholar. Have you ever seen uh, uh, Charlton Heston, the old one in 68, they filmed it out in California where they're hosing him, the apes are hosing him down and he's screaming, it's a madhouse. Remember that? You people don't watch movies. Put the fun back into fun. Here. This is Tyler McNabb. He chairs the ETS breakout session on Lycona's book. Assistant professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist. Say it with me. Baptist. <laughs> Southern Baptist. I went to Criswell's church. Sagamore Hills Baptist when I was a kid for a little bit. And guess what? That Baptist converted to Romanism in 2012. Did you hear what I said? It's a madhouse. There he is. He's the one that's cheering. See why they dislike me? Because I will name names. And I will tell you what's going on. Because I tell you something, listen to me. There's a movie called The 300. I'm desperate for 300. The evangelical critical scholars have tied this down now. They're in control of ETS. The old men that I were taught under, they're too old. They know it's a waiting game. And I need 300 men and women that will stand at Thermopylae at the hot gates like Leonidas did and said, they, I will not let these Persian hordes take this God's church over and we will stand against them. This is what you are called to do if you believe God's word. We need 300 men and women. And time is on their side and they know it. And they consider me and others that do this knee-jerk idiot fundamentalist. And I'll tell you something. They regret that I ever got the degree because I'm a bad boy. You know what I did? I graduated. And then I, my wife told me to do this. Keep your mouth shut, she said. So I did it, Dallas. I smiled. I act like a doofus. You can tell it comes natural. <laughs> and then she said to me, now that you've graduated, you let everybody know what they're doing. And I'm going to tell you something. If I were you, and this is going to sound terrible because it's my alma mater, I wouldn't give a nickel to them. Now you get mad at me. 
But until somebody has the chutzpah, and I do, I don't care if they have seniority. I don't care if they have tenure. I have the chutzpah to fire them all. And I'll put other men in. I'll do like Trump. (laughs) You're fired! You think I'm kidding. That's why God would never let me be in charge of anything. I'd fire them all. Here is where he admits to being that. One final thoughts. If the Gospels are just like Greco-Roman biography, then they are documents of faulty men. That's all they are. They are not inspired. They are surely filled with error. Good, just pick and choose what error. We go on. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Let's go on. Now evangelicals have a new position. The Old and New Testament is poetic history. Read Bob Wilkins' article based directly upon interviews that he says he conducted There's the choice of poetic fiction. Then there's me over here that God said it. I believe it. I'm an idiot. And then there's, it's poetic history. You know what that means? Pick and choose what you want. Pick and choose. They believe in Genesis and many other parts of Scripture. Read his on GES, his articles if you want them. He's got them there on the line. Poetic history is another way of saying there's a lot of allegory there. Now, how do they do this? Some of you have been talking to me about this. Here's what they do. They use what is called the magic of speech act theory. What is that, Dave? Now, that's how they do their dirty work. They they get into little esoteric, hard-to-understand little things so they can confuse you. But what they're doing is they're denying the plain, normal sense of Scripture. Speech act theory essentially says this, that the locution are the words... The illocution is the purpose of those words. So they go to the Bible and say, well, the words are, the locution, the words are inspired, but the only thing inerrant in the word of God is the purpose, the illocution of why they wrote. The door is open. The door is open. Did you hear what I just said? What did I mean? What did that, what does that mean? Huh? No, what does that mean? It ain't closed. Did you know why in the wide world the crazy junkyard dog even said that? But you understood what I meant, right? That destroys speech act theory because you don't need to know the purpose of something to know what it says. So here's what they do. They go to Genesis and say, well, the, the locution, the words are inspired, but it's only the purpose. The purpose is to show us that God created, but how he did it, is the purpose, and he's he just telling us he created it. That's his purpose, not how he did it. So you and me, naive simpletons that would say 24 soul hour days and all of this, evening and morning, you don't understand. It's speech act theory that you haven't applied. See, they've gone to secular universities, my guess. They've been raised on evolution, and they think that that's true. You'd have to be a real guy, a person of faith to believe that we evolved. If I'd rather believe in alien uh, stuff that they came and planted us here than evolution. It makes no sense. I'm, you know, I'm joking on the other, but nonetheless. Anyway, we'll go on. So here we go. So popular philosophical position, things affirmed in the text, the words, they may be 
inspired, but it's only the purpose. So you have to know the purpose, and that's the only thing inspired. So when you go to Genesis 1 through 3, not 24 days, not six days, 24 hours, not six days, not evening and morning. That's not, those words are inspired, but the purpose is just to show God created. We evolved from pre-hominid atomites of some sort. Purpose does not determine meaning. And we can go through that. I want to get further. And this is where you're getting this from. This is, uh, by the way, Wheaton Graduate School and Wheaton College. Every person there signs a statement they believe in inerrancy. That's their doctor's statement. My question is, what in the wide world do you mean by inerrancy? And the book praises how they're allowed to have the liberty to look at the Bible in various ways without being fearful of their job. Let them have their job, but I ask you something. Don't ever give into an institution like this. Stop. Because I'll tell you something they fear more. Presidents fear a lack of revenue, filthy lucre, than they do you. Cut their money off. You have power that you do not know. When you cut their money off, you cut their money off. You ask every, including whatever seminary I come from, and you ask those bozos, you say to them, what do you believe by inerrancy? And don't give them a nickel until they prove it to you. That's the way you can fight back as one of the 300. They'll tell you anything. Oh, it's our seminary is wonderful. They want your money. That's why they write alumni. They want money. Because you can't. Now they're saying it's too expensive to start a seminary now. Too expensive to start Christian schools. Cut their money off. Anyway, let's go on. Lost world of scripture. John Walton, D. Brent Sandy. There's their test case. Genesis 1 through 3. They apply speech act theory. The Bible's explicit statements, here's a quote, about the material word are part of the locution, the words, and would naturally accommodate the beliefs of the ancient world. You know what he's saying there? The idea that God created the world in 24 hours, just belief of those dumb, stupid people, those dumb Jews in the Old Testament. They didn't know why Moses couldn't even write. By the way, that's complete fiction too. We cannot encumber with scriptural authority any scientific conclusions we might deduce from the biblical text about the material world, its history, its regular processes. So what do they see in Genesis 1 through 3? Evolution. Now I can tell you one thing. Any simple Jew following the Lord in the Old Testament would never have seen evolution. I don't care how hard they tried, they wouldn't even thought about it. They would have read those words of what God said and they would have just believed God. God said, follow my words. But now we're too sophisticated for that, see. Uh, we're, it's like Boltman. We have to demythologize everything, Boltman said. We have to bring it up to modern standards. This is where this stems from. We need to ask whether the Bible is ma uh, making those claims of the type of creation in its elocutions, its purposes. So Genesis 1-3 to was a test case. And so they go through here, and you can look at this if you download it. And you can uh, see Walton and Sandy, but here's what ICBI said. We affirm the text of scriptures to be interpreted by what? Grammar and history, not historical criticism, grape nuts, or a pig with lipstick. We deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text that leads to de 
historicizing the plain normal sense. You see, they may sign the inerrancy statement. They may say they use it as a guide, but do they follow it? And you can go through, read ICBI and see if you can square this stuff with that. And by the way, ICBI, 400 men that knew things were melting down in the 60s and 70s and 50s, and they came in and got together and said, we need to stop this, and guess what? Critical evangelical scholars, I believe personally that they think they know better, that they're smarter and that they can accomplish what no generation has been allowed to do, meld the left-wing thinking into the inerrancy of God's Word. You can read through that. By the way, Presbyterian, as go the theological seminaries, so goes the churches. He was a U.S. Presbyterian major, eloquent spokesman. You know that. Many seminaries today are nurseries of unbelief. I tell you, I get guys, I get reports from guys. They come from Asia, India. They come to our seminary and they tell us when these guys get full rides at some of these prestigious evangelical seminaries, by the time those professors are done with them, they no longer believe the Bible and they want to go back to business. Well, that's good because they just be purveyors of heresy anyway. Okay, let me next, next guy, William Lane Craig. We've had enough of Lycona. Research professor at philosophy at Talbot. He's also at Houston Baptist University. Let's listen here. This was used by Islamic groups to go against the Bible. Here we go. I'll shut up. Okay, now, in Jewish tradition... This common literary practice involved inventing stories about characters, biblical characters, heroes, rabbis, holy men, and so on. This practice of creative storytelling is not, as some Christians or some conservative Christians have suggested, to be equated with lying or a lack of morality. People were more than happy to make up stories about other people and events and did so as they saw fit. More generally, this kind of rewriting of history is everywhere in the ancient world. And there is plenty of evidence that the first Christians were immersed in the world of creative storytelling that had minimal grounding in history. Now, statistically speaking, you might think that the telling of fictional stories would have to be part of the Gospels. They do, after all, talk about their own hero, Jesus and passages you might judge to be creative writing might include, I don't know, stories like miracles, resurrected people, eating with people, walking through walls kind of thing. You might think that they are invented stories. I'll leave that open for now. Okay. In fact, we have one relevant passage, which is, I think, quite obviously a human invention. And this is Matthew chapter 27 verses 52 to 53. And this is what it says. The tombs are opened. And the video closed. I don't know. Wait a second. I don't know. Let me find out what happened. I don't know what happened. Oh, come on. Now, my favorite attempt to avoid the blindingly obvious is by the ultra-conservative Bishop of Durham, N.T. Right. His real name is N.T. Wong. Some stories are so odd they may just have happened. This may be one of them. But in historical terms, there's no way of finding out. Hmm. Words like Elvis, fairies, vampires and zombies certainly spring to mind. And it does make you wonder what kind of critical history is left 
uh, in light of such comments, and it gives you some insight into the strange nature of the discipline. Now, there are good reasons, other than this being a story about several people rising from the dead, to believe that it didn't happen. It's not found in Mark. You'd think that Mark might have recorded such a stunningly spectacular event if it had happened. We'd hardly be ignorant of it. Story is not mentioned elsewhere in Gospels. Why? Why isn't it mentioned? The story of dead people rising from tombs is not found in the work of the first century Jewish historian Josephus. He knew of countless events in Jerusalem, wrote millions of these things down, and it really would have been bizarre if he admitted this pretty spectacular story if it had happened. Now, think of this in terms of a discussion between Josephus and his scribe. Okay? Well, Josephus, let's include a story about two teachers tearing down the decorations of the temple. We'll have to include the story of the Romans sacking Jerusalem and destroying the temple. Oh, we better include that story about those dead people rising from tombs, haven't we? Isn't it the most spectacular thing you've ever heard, Josephus? No. No. It's not that good. I think they'll find my witty accounts of the political wranglings in Jerusalem more than stimulating. Um, I mean, come on, this would not be omitted in any historical account if it had happened. The other argument against is that according to Jewish views on bodily resurrection, as outlined by Wright, these dead saints would probably have to be alive today. So, where are they? I don't know. Okay? Stand if you... Okay. But seriously, a key point is that we have a very good piece of evidence that the first Christians were inventing stories about bodily resurrection. Very no. good example. Wait, I we're going to get the response from the Christian apologist. Just wait. Stories could involve rewriting of history. Now, Dr. Crossley says, but look at uh, certain things in the Gospels that are clearly fictional and non-historical. And he gives the example of the resurrection of the saints. But as Dale Allison points out in his response to an article by Professor Crossley on this, admitting that there are legendary elements in the Gospels, for example, the resurrection of the saints, does nothing to undermine the remaining testimony of the Gospels to things like the crucifixion of Jesus, the empty tomb, the resurrection appearances. You can't treat the Gospels with so blunt an instrument of that if you're going to do significant historical work. Question, I think, to Professor Craig. Um, who would like to kick off? There's someone in the middle over there in the brownish shirt. We have to wait for the microphones to come. Oh, hi. Um, the Matthew 27 account seems to be problematic to you. You made the point you don't have to believe it to believe the resurrection. So I want to ask, do you believe it? Why do you believe it? And what happens to the dead people, um, as Mr. Crossley suggested, and the lack of Josephus evidence? Right. Well? I don't know what to think about this uh, passage. Actually, I think that on Dr. Crossley's view, he ought to take it as historical because it's very easy to understand how a community that believed that Jesus of Nazareth was risen from the dead uh, and, and therefore hallucinated visions of him might have a whole chain of hallucinatory experiences of seeing Old Testament saints risen from the dead and that Matthew then reports this fact that uh, people in the city saw these Old Testament saints and uh, they appeared to them. So it would be very easy on his hypothesis to think of this as being uh, an historical account of what people in Jerusalem experienced. I'm not sure what to think. It, um, my, my reservation is that 
it could be part of the apocalyptic imagery of Matthew, which isn't That's meant to be we taken in a like literal him. way, that uh, this would be part of the typical sort of apocalyptic symbolism to show the earth-shattering nature of the resurrection and the need to be taken historically, literally. But the one thing that I want to close with on commenting on this is note that this is not attached to a resurrection narrative. This story about the Old Testament saints is attached to the crucifixion narrative. So that if you try to say that because Matthew has this unhistorical element in his crucifixion account, that therefore the whole account is worthless, you would be led to deny the crucifixion of Jesus, which is one indisputable fact that everyone recognizes about the historical Jesus. So it really doesn't have any implications for the historicity of the burial story, the empty tomb story, or the appearance accounts. It's connected to the crucifixion narrative. I'm going to stop that and move on because we are limited in time. Uh, so that Muslim groups were using it to say not even Christian uh, philosophers believe some of this stuff. Let me go to this one now. Only one account that puts yeah. guards at the tomb. Were there guards okay. at the tomb? <laughs> well, now this is a question that I think is probably best. Oh, I had this ready. Hang on. Some of the critics say it's only one account that puts yeah. guards at the tomb. Were there guards okay. at the tomb? <laughs> well, now this is a question that I think is probably best left out of the program because some of the critics say it's only one account. Some of the critics say it's only one account that puts yeah. guards at the tomb. Were there guards okay. at the tomb? <laughs> well, now this is a question that I think is probably... Okay, I have that because I knew that I would have trouble with this every time, and I put it on a stick, um, and I take this as a spiritual battle, and I, no, I do. And I'm going to show you because I had this fixed to work well. I tested it several times. And I'm going to go on. Um, the other reason is that nobody seemed to understand Jesus' resurrection predictions. The disciples who heard them most often had not an inkling of what he meant. And yet somehow the Jewish authorities were supposed to have heard of these predictions and understood. Sorry. ...them so well that they were able to set a guard around the tomb. And again, that doesn't seem to make sense. So most scholars regard the guard at the tomb story as uh, a legend or a Matthean invention that isn't really historical. Fortunately, this is of little significance for the empty tomb of Jesus because the guard was mainly employed in Christian apologetics to disprove the conspiracy theory that the disciples stole the body. But no modern historian or New Testament scholar would defend a conspiracy theory because it's evident when you read the pages of the New Testament that these people sincerely believed in what they said. So the conspiracy theory is dead even in the absence of a guard at the tomb. The true significance of the guard at the tomb story is that it shows that even the opponents of the earliest Christians did not deny the empty tomb, but rather involved themselves in a hopeless series of absurdities, trying to explain it away by saying that the disciples had stolen the body. And that's the real significance of Matthew's guard at the tomb story. Sorry that that had a problem, but uh, we may have missed something that was more powerful, but 
I, th- I hope it will work. It's there. I don't know why it doesn't, but anyway. He says this, the evangelists had no intention that their story should be taken like police reports, accurate in every detail. What matters is that the central idea is conveyed. He supports Lycona in his ancient Greco-Roman biography hypothesis. Uh, Craig holds to what we would call limited inerrancy. To illustrate, at one time in my Christian life, I believed that Jesus actually cleansed the temple in Jerusalem twice, once near the beginning, as John relates, and once near the end. But in understanding the Gospels as ancient biographies, relieve us such a supposition. For an ancient biography can relate incidents in a non-chronological way. So when Jesus claimed the temple in John, uh, there was only one cleansing. John put it way at the beginning. The others put it at the end. There weren't two cleansings. Well, let me ask you something. Do you think, uh, right after Jesus cleansed the temple, that the uh, the money changers said, okay, you know, he's the Messiah, we've got to listen to him. Or what do you think they do at those tables? Put him right back. He did it twice. So there's a limited adherence there, and he says it's a peripheral belief. Ehrman had it, seems to me, a flawed theological system of beliefs. As it seems to me that the center of his web of theological beliefs was biblical inerrancy, and everything else, like beliefs in the deity of Christ and his resurrection, depend on that. Once the center was gone, in inerrancy, the whole web collapsed. So here is where... Uh, well, I, uh, what they're trying to do is say inerrancy is a peripheral belief now. And you need to put Christ at the center. But if the documents can't be relied upon, well, how could you put Christ at the center? So um, he was named, and congratulations, of the 50 most influential, ranked number one. Next, Robert Gundry. Um, how much time do I have, Dr. Dean? He just gave me the pirated sign and we're going to cut your throat. So I'll open it up to questions. Questions, right? I'm still not done and i got a lot to do. Any questions? Oh, questions right here. I could have been still still sitting. Um, <clears throat> how much? I don't know if you're going to be covering this, but I'm curious about the Q document, alleged Q document. I'll do that tomorrow, but I can okay. tell you a little bit. What would you like to know? I want to know how knee deep these guys are into Q, and I want to know about the uh, guys you've been referring to. I went to the same. Seminary you went to, although I went into a different department, you know, to escape. I went into the Bible department. Uh, At my day, that was the one safe department that you could go into and still remain what people would consider here to be safe. Right. That's, I don't know now. It's been 25 years. No, that was that was my experience, too. I graduated in 2009. But I don't, I don't want to steal thunder from tomorrow if you're going to do Q, but... Anything you can tell me? How, how knee-deep are these well, guys Well, here's in what you've got to think. What is SBL? The majority of SBL is Q and Mark. By the way, we'll show you tomorrow, no one in the early church ever said Mark was first. No one. Never. That changed in 1750. So you have to ask yourself, what happened in 1750? Then after 1750, Mark and priority was said to be first, and I'll show you the reasons why. And after that, they knew Mark being first wouldn't work because there were a lot of stuff in the other gospel works. So guess what they do? They invent documents that never existed. And then they package it all up, and SBL touts it, and then all the elite scholars says this is the way. It's like the emperor. Remember the story of the emperor? He was a clothes dandy, probably a British monarch, and he liked to dress up fancy, and the people kind of 
you know, were watching him, and then the poor tailor ran out of ideas to give him. And so the tailor made up that he put a suit on him, but the emperor was naked. And so the little boy, when the emperor is marching, the emperor is naked. And that's what the whole synoptic system is. It's If you look at it, it's a fad. It's laughable, but they consider me an idiot for saying that because I won't go with the SBL think and the what the elite uh, the elite prestigious scholars do and that's where it's at it's a fad i'll tell you where i think it's really at any other questions we'll get into it tomorrow we pass lutheran churches methodist churches all these churches what are they doing in their schools about inerrancy Sorry, I'm not quite tracking where you would... Um, Are any of these other denominations holding firm to inerrancy? I don't know. The mainline denominations, my guess would be, in the turn of the 20th century, left inerrancy. What, who is held to inerrancy are the evangelicals that formed after the meltdown with Machen and others. Now, uh, what happened was, and I'm going to tell a story, get mad at me, but I've been told by good sources that, uh, you know, Dallas was formed in 1924 for the uh, fundamentalist modernist controversy. And then, guess what? If you're fundamentalist, you have no respect among the scholars. So uh, I understand that it was, uh, here we go, you're going to get mad at me, Walver that started a scholarship to send his men to Europe. And now it's my personal opinion. Tell him I said so. It's in the toilet. I know he can't respond to himself, but I understood. Does anybody want to confirm that for me? They started and they sent all their men to where? Oxford, Cambridge, Aberdeen. And guess what? Boy, Dallas, they have some of the finest thinkers and elite scholars. And guess what suffered? The word, in my personal opinion. Yes, ma'am. I'm listening to what you're saying and I see a bigger a bigger picture um a bigger situation that is going on here um when I was in seminary I had quite a few discussions with my teachers about um um calling things in the bible uh fantasies or or um, basically saying that these were nice allegories and stories, you know. And we went around and around about a lot of things like that. But what I began to, to look at as I'm looking at a larger picture here, there is, I, this is my, my belief, that there is a larger plot going on and it has a purpose um, some of my um, mentors a long time ago told me that they had an influx of Jesuit priests that were going into um, into um, the seminaries disguised and and their purpose was the the oath that they took to bring down Mm, the Protestants by any means necessary. You are a spiritual lady. Can you come tomorrow at... When do I speak on the synoptic problem? 
I will affirm what you are saying. And yeah. I'm going to show you some things. And I'm going to show you that it was a chemist who was a, I shouldn't call him this, a rabbi, mm-hmm. who did the research on the Old Testament. And you know what he discovered? There was an infiltration of secret societies into yeah. seminaries that destroyed the word of God. And That's then I used to, you call, you know what you call people that say that? A conspiracy theorist. But do you know something? I doing the deep research for you so you don't have to. Do you know presidents of Harvard? I mean, not, yes, Harvard, Puritan presidents when it first started and Yale warned that America was being infiltrated by European secret societies to destroy the word of God. I'm going to try to show you what Antelman discovered tomorrow, and you're going to be shocked. Now, that's a conspiracy theorist. We ultimately can't prove that, but I want to say to you, there may be some indirect evidence that what you just said may be possible. We don't want to go on a witch hunt, but we want to know that if you were the devil, what would you do? Yes, and I will show you that if I can get through it, but you know how I am. Good luck. <laughs> Have we made that available, Barbara? The uh, synoptic thing? Okay. Okay. Is Alan still here? Where's Alan? We're going to close in with our closing hymn in just a minute. Thank you.